and welcome again to another episode of the Colin College Academic Continuity Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Garcia, and I'm joined this week by Casey Moon. Casey Moon is the Assistant Graphic Designer in the Department of Strategic Initiatives, and she's here to talk to us today about asset development, creation, curation, as well as implementation. Casey, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome, Mark. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing well. Hey, before we get going on the the topic, which I think is an incredibly fascinating one, I wanted to give you an opportunity to to give our listeners a little bit of, uh, I guess, kind of a mini biography. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and start just a little bit with um, how you and I started working together, and then I'm going to let you take the reins and talk a bit more about um, your your education and your expertise. Um, So Casey came to Colin College several years ago. She was originally working for both myself and Raul Martinez as an administrative assistant. And then when the Department of Strategic Initiatives started to build up more of uh, an actual department with staff, you transitioned into the role of assistant graphic designer. But before you even did that, you were instrumental in assisting me in developing some of the iconography and the illustrations that we wound up using in the Colin College student mobile application. So you've really been a a critical asset in my organization for many years. Um, But why don't you give our listeners a bit uh, more on your your biography, your backstory, um, where you went for uh, your education, and then maybe what you've done to to get to the point where you are in asset development and graphic design. Uh, Thanks. Thanks for the intro, Mark. Um, Really, my uh, education just goes back to right after high school, graduated 2004, and then I attended uh, SAIC Art School uh, in Chicago until about, I graduated 2009, and from there it was uh, miscellaneous jobs here and there, all the while trying to polish my vector resume as opposed to my fine art resume. <laughs> and luckily you guys eventually picked me up. <laughs> any any um, design or art endeavors that you, you were able to take part in while you were kind of um, waiting for your, your big shot to join us here at Colin? No, just small miscellaneous jobs, and, and those are usually free because they're usually friends and family, even though that you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do that. Yeah, no, I, I know how that goes. I know all too well. Um, <laughs> well, I guess real quick, maybe before we get too far into the discussion, any anything you'd like to mention has been like one of the biggest things you've noticed is different between maybe the, the fine arts um, pieces that you originally kind of were, were studying versus what you've kind of undertaken with us in terms of graphic design? Any any big things that you've noticed have been different or maybe some similarities? Um, it's mostly digital. I'll give it that. Um, that's the biggest <laughs> difference. It's really just the applications. The tools are different. Um, you're still using a lot of those same basic resources um, just in a, in a different medium in a different way. Awesome. Awesome. That's great to know. Um, so I brought you on the cast today because I wanted to, to really kind of highlight um, at least a, a topic that I think it might seem like it is is a pocket that, that only a select few would, would maybe either engage with or want to learn about. But I really think that it, it transitions and, and essentially can be applied to a variety of different 
um, subsets as well as as principles that we would apply on a day-to-day basis. And that is ultimately both asset creation and the principles that adhere to it and then the actual export and implementation of those assets. Um, and, And the reason why I wanted to bring Casey on the podcast today to talk to us was I really do think that from a professional perspective, when we as educators or staff members are developing content for courses or our website or print materials, that there is an art to the design that, that goes with that. And, and so, Casey, I thought you would just be an excellent addition to the podcast to talk a bit about both the, the principles that apply to that, things you've learned in working with us here at Collin College, and ultimately, um, you know, what, what your perspective is on this. So, um, you know, let's, let's talk a bit about asset creation and, and some of the principles that you learned when you were going through both your education as well as your professional endeavors. Um, well, I guess firstly, I'll just go through by, uh, or start off by going through a few, um, design laws. Sure. Uh, the first thing I'm going to talk about is, um, cognitive overhead. And this is, I, I guess, a fairly new term, and it's essentially how many logical connections or jumps in your brain has to make in order to understand or contextualize the thing you're looking at. Essentially, the more unnecessary information you have, uh, the harder it is to contextualize and break that down into simpler pieces. Um, so, for example, on like a, a, your faculty page, uh, in terms of simple instructions, contact information, office hours, you want to keep your page clear and clean and uh, consistent to lower the amount of time it takes to navigate to your page or nav- navigate around your pages. Okay, so so let me let me take an example of what I perceive to be maybe uh, cognitive overhead implemented in a very uh, busy and, and I think purposefully busy manner compared to what you were just talking about. So let's talk user terms of agreements. Um, <laughs> as we all know and love them, um, when you pick up a piece of software, one of the first things they do is they they push you to their terms and agreement page. It's a very dry um, document. From a legal perspective, it has every piece of information in there that the company that's pushing it to you um, wants you to quote-unquote know so that they know that they are legally clear uh, if you later decide, hey, wait a second, I didn't agree to that. Uh, but from an end-user perspective, it's this long slog of bricks upon bricks upon bricks of text so would you agree that the cognitive overhead on a document like that is just, it's, it's overwhelming? Um, yeah, definitely, especially in pages like Terms and Conditions. And sometimes they're designed to be that way, and unfortunately they're just that way by design. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, yeah, no, it's, it's just, it's one of those things that it just kind of, one of those things we all probably just click through as fast as possible, but it sure would be nice if we got like a bulleted list that just laid out the, the big takeaways we would need to know. For sure. Yeah, de- definitely having uh, some broad strokes would help. <laughs> um, what, what are, I guess, with regards to cognitive overhead, um, what are some of the things you've seen with cognitive overhead that, that you feel, or, or when you're creating something that you feel have really worked um, and, and maybe what are some of the other missteps that you've observed when it comes to 
to maybe people, users or whatever, not implementing good cognitive overhead? Um, well, my first experience with too much cognitive overhead, it was uh, easily um, iconography because it can be easy to add too much detail to an icon, you know, where you think you need to add these things to make it look like something. But sometimes the simpler, uh, the better. So there are times I've had to go back and simplify, you know, a couple of times to make sure that it's clean, consistent, and the user can actually read it. Um, colors are another big thing as well. If you have too many colors or uh, too many bright colors or too many harsh colors that don't have the proper contrast, that can also create uh, cognitive overhead. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're working on something, when you're designing something, um, how do you, can you give me maybe a little insight into your process? How do you take a step back to try and put yourself in the shoes of somebody who's going to consume that content when you're trying to assess cognitive overhead? It's essentially use case. Uh, what What is it for? Um, what is it being designed for? And it should do that particular job. Um, so if you have iconography just for your syllabus, it doesn't need to be over the top. If it's clean and simple, then you know the students will be able to comprehend the information uh, much better. With awesome. something like uh, digital assets, of course, Size wouldn't necessarily wouldn't necessarily be an issue, especially with what we'll talk about later, vectors, scalable vector graphics, SVGs. Um, but you still have to take you know that that curve radius into account if you're dealing with a, a very very small icon that you're going to be seeing that's um, not even a thumbnail, and then something that's maybe going to be you know 1,200 pixels wide. Uh, so it's important to actually you know kind of take a step back and make sure you're looking at everything at the proper size at different stages of development. Okay, this is, this is, these are great points. Um, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges, and, and maybe the one that applies the most to the staff and faculty here at Collin, is that digital presentation, especially in Canvas, our LMS, because, um, you know, I do think that one of the things that has to be considered is some students may access the content on a Canvas page on a traditional laptop or PC and have a very large screen, while other students might access that exact same content on a mobile device or a tablet and have less real estate. Um, and that means that any icons you do choose to implement, any images you choose to implement, you have to kind of take that into perspective and know, okay, my students are going to see it this way, so I really want to make sure that it is easy to understand and interpret. Um, from from a just a just a fun little question here, Casey. Any um, any companies or firms out there that that utilize either iconography or digital assets from the perspective of cognitive overhead that you absolutely love? Like any any you want to gush about right now? I mean, Apple's always a home run. Everything they do is always very clean. Um, Android stuff, material design. <sighs> Off the top of my head, I can't think of anything in particular, uh, but there are definitely quite a few good ones. Okay. That's, hey, those two are, are really good places to start, honestly. I, I've spent uh, a lot of my personal time just 
drilling down into Apple's icons and saying, how did I not see that this was a simple way to represent a television set or something like that? I mean, <laughs> there there is definitely an art form to creating clean and easily interpretive um, icons. I guess another point that I had thought of when we were talking about this, uh, an example that I think everybody maybe maybe we can't relate to it as easily right now because a lot of us are still practicing social social distancing and, and maybe not getting out in our cars as much. But I think another good example of uh, very, very well-implemented cognitive overhead uh, might be in billboards, um, especially the well-made billboards, uh, because they have to convey a very specific message with images that, that are eye-catching um, and they have to do it in the time frame that a driver could see it, internalize it, understand it, and then, um, you know, continue driving without losing sight of the road. Would you would you agree that billboards, at least if done well, can be a, an excellent example of cognitive overhead implemented well? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Because you know, billboards, much like the uh, the highway signs, you know, you pass underneath are massive. You know, when you're at when you're right up close, they're absolutely huge. Um, but of course, in a car, they're maybe about the size of your thumb when you first see them. So yeah, poor cognitive overhead for something like a billboard. Um, at at best, it does not convey information. At worst, it would be a serious traffic hazard. Um, <laughs> yeah, but... we don't want that. <laughs> okay, um, so that's cognitive overhead. Um... Let's let's move on to. I know you've got a lot of these principles. I don't want to keep belaboring them. So, what's the next principle or law that we're going to discuss? Uh, next law of design we're going to discuss is Hicks law, which is essentially the time it takes uh, to make a decision increases with the number and complexity of choices. Essentially, if you have a syllabus or a PDF document or a form, uh, in that form, if you have you know thirty fields. The student may start to look for, okay, what do I actually have to fill out? Um, because too much information, as we've discussed you know, previously with that cognitive overhead, is incredibly cumbersome. Okay, and so, so I think uh, a good takeaway from that is, um, and I think this might be able to apply actually as well beyond just um, making those choices, but in general, uh, it sounds kind of like the, the more content that a student has to wade through to, to do something, um, the, the more challenging it's going to get for them to either make a decision or to take any kind of action. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, you know, with, with teachers of, and courses, of course you're going to have lots of text in certain areas and you're going to have uh, lots of options. Ideally, and you know, you're going to reserve the most... Uh, the largest amount of text for things like PDFs, you know, things that the student can later take with them. And it's not something, like you said, they're sort of muddling through or to get through just to maybe get to the next module or the next page. Gotcha. And so, so for example, let me give a couple of scenarios and you can maybe tell me if these are, are good applications of Hicks Law. Um, so if, if I'm a professor teaching a class and maybe I'm wanting to solicit some feedback on um, on, let's say I just gave them a unit. I, I was a biology professor, so I always go back to respiration because cellular respiration is the hardest unit um, that, I, that I probably teach just from a, a conceptual perspective. Um, so let's say that I've got several lectures and I've got several assignments, several activities, and then a quiz. 
um, and then maybe some additional links and assets tied to the respiration unit. Um, so I've got these different components that all make up my one big unit of respiration. If I'm wanting to solicit really granular feedback from my students on each of those different components to see how well each one resonated with them in that unit, from what I'm interpreting here with Hicks Law, you would recommend that maybe I give... Um, Instead of giving a singular survey at the very end of the unit that asks the student very specific questions, I either give a more generalized survey at the end that just says, how do you think this unit went? Um, and then maybe just a couple of selections following that. Or if I am going to go and want to get super granular, that maybe I just follow each individual component with a feedback assessment that can be um, just a short, simple survey that will allow the students to provide some general feedback there as well. Is, is that kind of in line with Hicks Law? Absolutely. Yeah, there's definitely a, a uh, marketing aspect to it because the in, within, with simpler information uh, comes convenience. And, you know, as we all know, people are willing to pay for convenience because it's what we want. It's the shortest point from A to B. Right. Um, so if you're looking for input from your students, yes, if giving maybe like a thumbs up or a thumbs down uh, in certain areas. If you really need more feedback, you can always leave an additional box so they can provide that additional feedback. Right, right. And and I guess a great example of this too, right, in, in the consumer uh, industry is, is really like the star rating. Like I feel that if you really love something, it's easy to give it five stars. If you really hate something, it's easy to give it one star. If it seems to be kind of middle of the road, that two to four star rating gives you the flexibility and the versatility to say, I didn't absolutely love it, but I was way more positive than I was negative on it. And that's the four star. Um, the, the two star is I didn't hate it worse than anything else, but it was a, it was a really, really poor customer experience for me. And then that three star is it's not exceptional, but it's also not terrible. It's a mediocre kind of thing. And, and, you know, if we took that from a five-star rating to a 10-star rating, I think that that is definitely something where the user would start to, to have an issue with classifying how they truly feel uh, about a product. If, if you take it up to 10 stars instead of five already, how do I distinguish, like, nine from eight? What, what makes something a nine versus an eight versus a 10? You know, I mean, it, it just gets to be super confusing for me. I think that's sort of the magic number for those things. It's either two, three, or five. It doesn't really go a whole lot above that when it comes to like ratings or simple choices. I, I You really don't see anything hitting about six or seven, even like if you think multiple choice questions. Yep. Um, uh, there was a interesting podcast I I used to listen to and it was uh it was called the like psychology files and uh and he talks about the what is it it's sort of the burden of choice that you know his experience buying jeans you know 10 years ago he'd go into a store he'd have two choices buy one pair of jeans and be you know feel great about his decision because there's only one right or wrong answer nowadays if you go in maybe there's like five styles and different you know, fabric types and all this, that, and the other. He felt he he's a, he would have jeans that fit better than the old ones ever did, but he felt worse about his choice simply because the the chance of being wrong was so much higher. Right. 
<laughs> that is a great uh, point, and I think I've actually read a bit more on that study as well. Um, it's it's a big reason why a lot of people who maybe have extensive uh, backlogs for movies or video games or books might have trouble actually getting started with one or selecting one uh, because they have so many choices. There's this inherent fear of making the wrong choice, and so ultimately no choice is made. Um, or you have choice so. paralysis. Exactly, yeah. You literally just are paralyzed because there are so many options and it's impossible for your brain to, to quantify and, and rate how they stack up, so you're just paralyzed. Um, Mark learned through trou troubleshooting to uh, simplify that stuff with me as well. Yes. Well, I mean, and, and then on, on the, the flip side of that, you know, when, when I have a, a decision and I have to make a call... Um, you know, you have the electrical mats in my office to where at any point in time, you if, if it's an unfavorable decision or I'm, I'm, I'm paused with fear, one of them just has electricity sent through it and it forces me into some form of, of selection process. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting you say that, you know, because uh, emotion actually, we can't, you know, be like Vulcans, this idea that our higher evolved state would be like Vulcans, but we rely on some level of emotion to make decisions, to make those little simple decisions. Um, things that, you know, when it comes to like ratings or, or uh, colors we prefer, or if you're trying to choose a pen, if you're trying to weigh the differences between choosing a blue or black pen, you know, the logical differences, I mean, you could fill a page, I'm sure. So sometimes we do kind of have to rely on that emotional decision-making as well as the logical decision-making. Gotcha. One of the things I'm noticing is that uh, both between um, cognitive overhead and Hick's Law, um, it seems that one of the, the commonalities between those two principles is that less is more. That ultimately um, either limiting the the actual information provided to the user or limiting the decisions they might have to make ultimately uh, results in a more positive user experience. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. Um, okay. Oh, go ahead. Okay. I was going to say we can move on to the next law. Uh, yeah. Whenever you're ready, uh, I want to talk about uh, Jacob's Law, and that was described by Jacob Nielsen, uh, which is a principle of usability that recommends the use of familiar patterns in design in order to facilitate user experience, because users prefer it when a site works in the same way as all other sites they already know. Take something like uh, blue hyperlinks. That's extremely common. It's kind of an extreme example, but it's extremely common. All your links on your site were to be like red or green. That's also gonna add to that uh, cognitive overhead that we talked about once before. Right, and, and um, this is something too goes just beyond even graphic design and we're seeing it play a larger role now in accessibility and that is beyond even the um, the actual shape and appearance of something one of the common things on the code side of things with websites nowadays is to include a role so that if there are screen readers um, that a user who is using one of those screen readers can have it read that role to them so that they can also understand that particular element and also know its function uh, and, and in their mind the interpretation of how it should behave. Um, so familiar patterns in design like 
great example, again, going back to what you said before with Google or Apple, um, you know, on their website and also in their mobile operating systems, you see these common buttons that do very specific things and you can consistently rely on those buttons to do something in particular. Um, you know, one, one of the great examples in Google's material design is the plus button, where when you're wanting to create something new, there's always this circle encapsulating a plus icon that ultimately, from a user perspective, communicates to the user, if you're wanting to create something new, this is going to allow you to do that. Yes, and this doesn't necessarily entail, you know, if most websites use these uh, particular colors for their brands or those particular fonts, anything that revol revolves around their brand identity is something different entirely. Um, what I'm talking about more are uh, is more of a global standard for uh, things like colors and shapes. You know, just like uh, Mark was saying with Google, you know with all of their applications when you see the same symbol, it's going to be the same throughout all their applications and the same goes for Apple devices. Every Apple will look the same as every icon on every iOS device. Uh, right. So that sort of similarity cuts down again on that cognitive overhead that users have to get through to understand how either your site works or how uh, other sites work or how just their interface works. Yeah, and, and I think to that effect, another great example uh, with regards to like a software application might be um, with emails constantly for the send button you're going to either see I, I feel one of two things you're going to either see um a an arrow signifying that you are about to send the email and in what manner you're going to send that email or you're going to see some form of paper uh represented as either an envelope showing you that you're sending the email as a letter um which which kind of mimics um, the more traditional form of dropping a letter in the mailbox to, to send it, or uh, a common one that seems to be used frequently across the board nowadays is uh, a paper airplane. Like you're actually folding up a message into a paper airplane and you're tossing it through the air uh, to better represent email being this digital mean of means of delivering uh, mail. That's Yeah, that's very true. And it's also important to pay attention to... Um, regular iconography from major websites like Google or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook that you happen to use on your site or for links to your particular media, um, you should try and use the most up-to-date icons. You know, there are cases when, you know, you might catch an old icon and it might not be that out of place, but that paired with many out-of-date things either on uh, the print material or for the digital material can make it look even more dated and those variables can kind of stack against one another. That's a great point. Um, and I, it's something I, I want to bring to light here um, because it, if you were to, just a general example, let's take the original YouTube icon from the very first iPhone. Um, it was a tube television set um, with knobs. Um, <laughs> and so... If you take that and put it on your site to represent YouTube, users are going to have no idea what that is supposed to represent, right? Because um, it, it just does not, that, that is an out-of-date, deprecated icon. Whereas if you pull in the new YouTube icon, which is just a white background with not even technically a, a rectangle, 
it's almost this, um, I guess it's a slightly bloated kind of rectangular shape that has a play button in the center of it. Um, that is the recognized iconography for uh, YouTube now. And the same happened with Instagram when they switched from the traditional Polaroid style uh, camera to what is now their icon, which is literally just um, a, an icon that's intended to represent that. It's kind of this rounded uh, square shape with circles in it that represents a camera. Um, so very, very valid point there in ensuring that you have the most up-to-date assets. So Casey, wh what could happen? Let's say that I was, I was building a page in Canvas um, and I wanted to add in a button that would take a student to a module um, but I use the wrong iconography. Like, let's say that I, I take them to a module page that is just a page with text, um, but I accidentally put in an icon like a music note or, um, or uh, just a play button. Because for me, I'm saying, okay, they're engaging in this, and this page talks about music. Um, so I want to include that, but then when the student gets to the page, it's just text on a page with an image. There's no audio and there's no video what is what kind of scenario is that creating for my end user for my student when I do something like that and I don't adhere to Jacob's law um it I mean at worst it uh it makes things very off uh or at best it makes things very off and at worst it causes a great deal of miscommunication uh student is not in a classroom they can't uh ask you know exactly where they're supposed to get something right there in the moment so they need to be able to rely on information that the faculty put out on their page to help guide the students through the process as easily as possible and that doesn't mean you need to obsess over iconography um, most of the time you can get the most up-to-date iconography you're looking for off of the actual sites Apple ha uh, gives uh, complete access to a variety of their icons. Uh, so does Google. So does Microsoft. Um, and if you can't find what you're looking for, even on their site, it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's definitely available on the web. Yeah, yeah, and and I mean, again, I I don't know that this is going to apply largely, but it's just something to keep in in mind. Um, and so then also like with regards to representation. Because you brought up the hyperlinks, and and I think that sometimes there are on a web page there are hyperlinks and there are buttons. So so if I'm building out a, a canvas page, and I want to in, integrate like a, a hyperlink versus a button because they to a degree have similar functions, to a, a very minimal degree, right? They are asking the user to click on them. That's the end goal or objective of each of those elements. A hyperlink is going to take a user to a website, whereas um, a button is going to perform a specific action within the context of the current website or the current page of that website. So again, from a representation perspective, if you're creating what looks like a button and the user believes it's going to drive a specific type of action and then it takes them to a different page, either within your site or on an external site, that there's this cognitive dissonance that occurs because of that, at least in the end user's mind. Uh, is, is that kind of the principle of Jacob's Law? Yeah. It, just ensuring... Yeah, I mean, that? yeah, kind of the way you put it just now, it's it's almost like they, 
you know, out of the three cups, they pick up one of the cups and they see that, oh, the ball's not under there, so they were not going to touch the red cup again because they're not yeah. necessarily finding what they're looking for and we're used to seeing consistency everywhere we go. I mean, you know, just even in homes, uh, the way brick is laid, it's not, you know, this weird amalgamation of things. Um, you know, nature has patterns and so on and so forth. I think... It, it reminds me very much of a couple of, of, of stories I'm going to tell briefly, just and you can chime in here. Um, one I was actually exposed to when I went to an Apple conference, and they talked about the very first hotel in New York City that had electricity with light switches. And one of the side effects of that was when they came up to clean the rooms after people stayed, all of the light switches were charred. Um, they had these burn marks on them. And what they found was that all of the people who were coming to stay had never stayed in a place with electricity. And they were breaking out their matches or their lighters to, to turn on the lights and holding them up to the switch panel in an attempt to turn on the lights. <laughs> and so it was like this foreign concept. And um, I think a great example of this, too, was with the original... Um, iPhone and a lot of the original smartphone operating systems, they utilized a design principle, um, and you might be able to correct my pronunciation, but I believe it was pronounced uh, skeuomorphism. Is that uh, correct? It's, I'm not sure if it's skeuomorphism or skeuomorphism, but uh, okay. skeuomorphism essentially is those old icons that where they made them shiny and look glossy and super three-dimensional. Um but there was and, really and, just too much to them at the time. So once we we moved on from that design trend, I, it seemed very dated. So every time we sort yeah. of take a step, it seems to be a step in the right direction towards a uh, general globalization uh, regarding design, which ideally is, I think, a good thing. Well, and, and, and if I'm not mistaken, the reason why they adopted um, skeuomorphism or skeuomorphism, however it's pronounced, um, in like the original iPhone was because it was a big transition from the physical world to this mobile enhanced world with a smartphone. And so the icons needed to reflect that to give users context of how everything would behave within that particular application. You know, so like, for example, with Game Center, this was, I think, the tipping point of skeuomorphism when we started to, to shift to what was called flat design, um, was that they had an actual felt table in the app, um, you know, the, the bookcase where oh, the that's books right, would they be did. stored. Yeah, yeah, the bookcase where the books would be stored had wood paneling. I mean, everything was built to look digitally like it did in the real world. And at least the arguments for why that was at the time were because they, the, the software engineers wanted users to have the familiarity of the physical world that they occupied and feel more empowered to touch things digitally and interact with them and once we got over that point where users had built a familiarity in smartphone user interfaces then we slowly we basically what happened was we went to the opposite route which was we just completely removed everything 
And then we started seeing these trends where gradients and colors and shadow were used. And now it feels like in today's modern day and age, um, it's, I believe it's called neomorphism or newmorphism is the hot trend, which is almost an amalgamation of both flat or very minimalistic design and aspects of that skeuomorphism. Um, yeah, it's really, I, I, I don't, it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's really interesting to, to go from like Italian Renaissance to like, you know, okay, now we're going through periods of skeuomorphism and then there's flat and then there's almost this flat impressionism and then this sort of flat impressionism that's minimalistic and then you lean more towards humorism. <laughs> so yeah, it's definitely, uh, taken different forms, but as, as we learn to interact with technology a little bit better, it feels much more natural to have, you know, maybe just a super flat, uh, material type design because, you know, what you're looking at is emulating a desktop as in, you know, paper. Right. So the right. cleaner and things are, the easier it is to differentiate uh, without going so far out of the color boundaries that it doesn't look unnatural to the eye. That makes any yeah, sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, it totally does. Um, so moving on from Jacob's Law, which which is interesting, and I think we could probably have an entire podcast just dedicated to Jacob's Law and geek out over um, design firms and companies that implement it well – um, there's this next law that you had in your notes that you sent to me called the, the if you can tell me if I'm pronouncing it wrong, called the, the law of pragnans. I, th- I think that's correct. Um, and that's essentially that people will perceive complex information in the simplest forms possible. To break that down into the simplest form possible, um, <laughs> we see groups of things. You know, when we're looking into a room, we're not snapping a a photograph in our heads of everything that's in the room. We, our eyes break things up into groups. How many pieces of furniture, uh, how many, you know, groups of things on the desk. Um, so whenever people are trying to, uh, contextualize and try to navigate their way through a web page, the simplest answer is usually the best answer. Right. Or, or let's say that you're making a one sheet or a flyer that I'm going to hand out to people um, to convey in- information about something that we're working on as a project. I- I'm probably going to be better suited to categorize my, my main talking points, my elevator pitch into a subset of categories, maybe three to five at most, and then have minimalistic bullet points for each of those so that the user can look and see, okay, uh, how does this meet my needs? And then with, if they want to drill down into one of those specific topics, you know, they can see some very like 35,000 foot like scope view of, of what that could do for them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, cause there was just, uh, like in the old days, I'm sure you remember, uh, you know, MySpace mm-hmm. would be like the, the worst form of, uh, the law of prognods because, there, there's information was everywhere and everything had bright <laughs> colors and it was just too much. And then you'd have a seizure and, um, but, or like the old Yahoo page, you know, where it just was kind of having a yard sale for links. Um, right. Yeah. Right. So breaking down your information into not only structural components that make sense, but design elements that also make sense. Um, right. And that actually kind of leads into the next law, which is the law of similarity. Um, people perceive elements together based on type and color. 
simply enough uh, stop signs. If not all stop signs were red and some were purple, there would probably be some problems. Yep. Um, if you have students on your web page and everything you notate as uh, a cited source is, you know, bulleted in green, and then suddenly those cited sources are bulleted in red elsewhere, that's going to create uh, a disconnect of communication in the user's mind, thinking this is different. How is it different? I can't figure out why it's different. So part of their brain almost leans on that piece of design that doesn't quite fit in and occupies you know, a uh, mental capacity. Huh. Yeah. And that's, that's, um, an excellent point. Like one of the, I know one of the things I con- consistently do is, um, you know, I'll, I'll look on a page for, uh, maybe a product I'm searching for. And if the website shifts the button color to signify if the product is or isn't in stock, I can consume, um, the information on that page very quickly and very easily. I can just kind of take a, a mental um, inventory of what products are currently in stock and what products are not currently in stock. Um, and so, again, kind of going with my behavior pattern, it's just it makes it very, very simple and easy to kind of navigate through that, that information. A lot of companies will uh, uh, differentiate warm and cool colors to indicate, you know, maybe two different sections of the website, you know, two different uh, or two polar differences. For example, out of stock might mean red or add to cart might be green. So everything that's positive that uh, is associated with working properly is blue or green. And anything that's associated with being out of stock or not working properly or uh, let's say you're an English teacher and you're wanting to give multiple examples of bad grammar. You know, maybe you would put, you know, those as red bullet points because those two things go together. Just by having a color association, there's going to be better retention. Gotcha. So instead of um, creating a page in Canvas per se with just a bunch of different colors everywhere, um, it would probably make more sense that if I'm trying to maybe draw attention to a specific point that I consider to be a positive point to use maybe some subtle green background with a, a very darker deep green um, on top of that to kind of say, hey, this is an important point and it's a positive one. Whereas if something is maybe I'm trying to give an example of something that is negative or not a principle that I want students to follow, they can see... Um, a slightly red, like a very, very faint red background with red text or something like that um, to, to both compartmentalize those pieces of content and then also, um, at a glance, allow the student to interpret positive and negative. Absolutely. Um, Amazon uh, does something interesting with this because they use warm color. A lot of brands, usually, especially if they're selling, is it retail, most will lean towards green or blue, especially if it's a financial institution. Um, Amazon, since they use a lot of warm colors, is primarily like black and orange, which is kind of hard to work with. But whenever something is out of stock, they add the red, but they also uh, subtract their... Uh, their trademark orange from what would normally be either the buy it now or add to cart button. So 
it's not that you just immediately notice the red, but it's also that something is off, something is missing. Right. So it's almost like we're conditioned to expect and anticipate a particular component and color to be in the the user interface. Um, and then when it's not there, that can do as much for us as the addition of that color that's intended to highlight that something is different, is yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, if you went into a department store and you walk through and then just, you know, one of the aisles was completely blocked off, you would notice that. <laughs> that would really, really <laughs> stick out. It's, it's a, really, a big store. A really point. The aisle might not be big, but that's it's going to make a difference. Yeah, that's a really good point. I, I, I hadn't even thought about the, the lack of the button and that color, um, you know, serving that same kind of purpose. But it's a very, very valid point. Um, all right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and ask, too. We have a final talking point here before we're going to shift gears and move into um, what we do with the assets after we've created them. Um, so let's talk serial position effect. Serial position effect essentially means we best remember the first and last items in a series. Okay, so... So essentially, in, that... in this regard, I'm sure you can recall uh, the first thing we talked about. Yes, exactly. So the first thing we talked about, um, aside from the intro, which is the obvious, um, <laughs> the obvious answer, but beyond the intro, the first thing, of course, we talked about was the cognitive overhead piece. Yes, and then of course, you know, we're definitely going to remember this one because it is sort of the last in this particular series. Uh, but I mean, running through any kind of particular list or a set of numbers, the first and last do stand out the most because uh, it's sort of the difference between uh, zero and one. You know, that's huge. And then the difference between one and two, that's also huge. Difference between two and three, not as big, still kind of big, but then you continue on in that, in that order and then it starts to lose some of its uh, cohesion or, or mental cohesion in a way. Yeah, I, I think um, so. Um, I'm, I'm going to go a little off the beaten path here with this, but, but from the perspective of serial position and then also like hearkening back to some of our earlier principles, um, because I think that serial position effect is a great talking point with regards to building content in Canvas, right? If you're wanting to build kind of a, a series of, of list items that your students are going to consume, you want to make sure that the two topics that they're really going to remember the most um, are at the beginning and the end, you want to make sure that those important topics are in those positions because they're most likely going to remember those two things as opposed to anything in between. Um, but I, I, Temple Grandin, who um, is a very, very famous individual, she's got a PhD and does a ton of work with animals and she's also autistic. Um, she has spoken at length about the usage of lists and the, the importance of keeping them as simplified as possible because it makes both a set of guidelines that are easy to adhere to and it makes the information so much easier to consume and implement than if you have this super long list that has additional sub-bulleted items and everything else. So I think tied with serial position effect, um, that kind of concept of less is more, again, hearkening back to our first topic, that cognitive overhead, is, is critical. 
Yeah, so, um, I mean, so, uh, you know, or our attention span, you know, depending on, you know, if you have focus issues or, uh, you know, if you don't have focus issues, it our mind is not always pinpointed on one thing, you know, for extended periods of time. Um, our, our focus kind of blurs in and out sometimes, in and out of focus, sort of like vision. Uh, I believe there was a, it was a college psychology test where they had uh, students memorize seven-digit numbers and halfway to where they were supposed to, you know, deliver those numbers uh, that they could only deliver uh, just from remembering, they were stopped in the middle of the hallway and asked if they wanted um, cake or a cup of fruit for to thank them for helping out with the, uh, the study. And uh, people who were given seven numbers to remember, I believe, chose the cake more often because that logical part of their brain um, was being utilized to try and remember those numbers that they made the emotional decision on uh, the food choice instead of the fruit, whereas those who only had to remember three numbers would choose fruit much more often. Hmm. That's fascinating. Huh. So let's real quick before we we transition here, following that um, that chat, I, I want to kind of try and wrap up a lot of these laws together. So, well, you know, you and I are talking about them from the context of we're trying to create assets here. We're trying to actually develop icons. You know, your work in my department is you're building icons for us. You're you're illustrating things for us. But let's let's take this um, on a more global approach to our faculty and our staff who might be utilizing Canvas or crafting an email or doing something along those lines. So taking these principles uh, into account, obviously. Um, you know, less is going to be more. I think that's one of the big things we we're taking away from a lot of these topics is that there is a way to ensure that the message is received, that you're providing um, all the content that needs to be provided without overloading the end users with so much content. Um, I think that there's a way that you can place the content, whether it's media like an image, along with text that makes it look clean and aesthetically pleasing. And then you've also brought some of these context, uh, these ideas to, to simplifying the number of user choices uh, when we're using a series to keep things limited because users are really only going to remember the first and last things. Um, and that means you need to put your important calls to action there. And then also if you're going to add anything that the user can interact with to ensure that it takes a shape and a form that's going to behave in a similar fashion to what the user expects from their previous conditioning across other websites, emails, and applications in general. Um, if you were to kind of try and, let's say that some of our users or listeners here maybe don't have a background in graphic design, Casey. So if they have some pages they've built in Canvas where they're wanting to clean them up and they're wanting to, to make them look more aesthetically pleasing, and maybe they they know that something is off or they know that something can be improved, but they're not sure what. Are, are there any just general tips that kind of uh, align with these laws and principles that you might offer them that would allow them to make some quick touch-ups that could really maybe enhance the look and feel of their pages? Uh, first, I guess uh, one good rule uh, to start off with would be use a very readable body font. 
Uh, for your headers, you can go with something a little bit more blocky, but for your, uh, your body font, you definitely want something that's going to be very legible because you want something easy on the eyes for the students. Um, and then if you want to use more creative fonts in different segments, you know, just based on uh, what the text is or if you're using it for graphical purposes, then that works uh, as well too. Uh, the next tip I would offer is to use a limited color palette. Um, you can use... Uh, there's usually a primary, and there are two variations on the primary, you know, a lighter and a darker, an accent color. So you could have a website that, let's say, uh, use Walmart for instance, you have primarily blue um, with those highlights and sparks of orange, and of course the contrasting white as well. Um, as long as you're not making your text red, blue, anything aside from maybe just a either black or a very deep gray is actually much better. Uh, Mark, I think you have a favorite hex code for that. I think you have it I memorized. Do. I don't even have it yes. memorized. Which uh, one is it? Hash, it's hash 007AFF. Um, it's this very, very um, brilliant kind of almost a royal blue, but it's, it's one that I believe Apple has implemented extensively across their um, their operate their mobile operating system. It's just it's a very pleasant blue to me. Um, it's not too dark. It's not too light. And for whatever reason, I just gravitate towards it consistently. Um, <laughs> See the Evernote green, the the one they used to have is the one that really would you know it just stab your eyes from your television if if it happened to be on that screen. Because <laughs> I think that actually the most sense or the color that we're most sensitive to is is actually right in between that yellow and green. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. That that I... really insane neon color. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I'm getting off track. Yeah. Neons you probably don't want to use so much in yeah. your in your site. Yeah, they're very hard. So harsh colors, uh, you don't want to use so much. Um one good tip to make sure your colors or your grays look like they fit and one that one trend I'm really seeing uh, pop up just about everywhere now is if you're going to use a deep dark gray background, like a charcoal background, if uh -huh. your images are primarily blue, you can take that gray and that color wheel and just shift it towards blue ever so slightly. And you won't necessarily see the difference right away, but if you were to hold up a before and after where you had, let's say, a uh, pastel blue block letters on a dark charcoal background and then those same letters on a dark charcoal background with a hint of blue in it it's almost as if it uh it allows the text to uh be more at the forefront because our eyes yeah. are used to light color light colors you know in, in the morning whenever you get that blue shift most everything has that blue hue to it you don't have blue and then you know, that one weird part of your house that's glitching out of the matrix and coming out, you know, redshift. Right. <laughs> um, 
What about image positioning? If, if I've got a page where I've got maybe a lot of text and an image that I want to drop in, uh, is it best maybe to put the image at the top, um, to break up the text with the image in the middle, or to put the image at the bottom? Like, Or it, is that just kind of an as-I-need-it? It's really an as-you-need-it. If you're using it for instruction, it's definitely as-you-need-it. Um, if you're going by size, if you're just looking for something to spruce up your page so it's not just text, um, if it's a banner, you want to use it to separate. If it's you're going to use it in the middle, you'd want to use it to separate larger sections um, okay. or at the very top or at the very bottom as a footnote. Um, if you're doing awesome. square images, uh, if you've already decided, it would be important to decide on whether you want one or two columns. What you don't want is for your page to jump around with a whole bunch of columns because that column visual is there in everything we see and it's it's like one of those things where when it's on, you don't see it, but when it's off, you really do see it. Right. So right. keeping that kind of column consistency is also very important. Um, if you have a square image, it can go to the left or the right, or you can have it, you know, in line with a block of text. Um, but okay. ideally you do want to have those invisible column and sort of in between gutter spaces for your page. Gotcha. So, Let's say we've gone through these design principles and we've actually created assets or I've gone to a website and I found an icon or an image or something like that I want to, to utilize. Um, so we've created it or we've pulled it. Let's talk just a little bit in, in the last uh, segment here of the podcast proper about um, some of the, the properties of these, these assets. Um, so the first one I want to talk about real quick is just the concept and the idea of resolution. Um, and specifically when we talk resolution, what I'm really wanting to talk to you about primarily are, are two big things. Um, the first is what's called aspect ratio and the importance of that. And then the second really is um, DPI. So let's talk aspect ratio as it applies to um, an image. So I'm dropping an image in what do I need to be mindful of as it pertains to, to aspect ratio? What is aspect ratio and why do I need to worry about it? Aspect ratio simplifies uh, things so much, especially when you're dealing with digital content and especially now when you're seeing a shift towards vector-based content, so not rasterized, not pixel-based items, actual shapes that will respond to your browser or your user interface. Um, My apologies. We're, okay, yeah, that's okay. So aspect ratios. Imagine a 2 by 4 I mean, a 2 by 4 is going to be just that, 2 by 4 It's going to be twice as long as it is wide. And the same if it was uh, 1619, which I believe is uh, ultra-wide. Um, oh, and there's a 16-9 ratio, which is 16 uh, units wide, 9 units tall, and that's 1920 by 1080 that the 16 to 9 is simply just about parts and individual units. Like you would say one part sugar, two parts flour. I right. don't know what that could mean. And, and I guess maybe from, a, from a, a more layman perspective, when we talk aspect ratio, one of the things we're talking about here, if you're thinking of your device, might just be something as simple as a landscape perspective versus a portrait perspective. So if you go to drop uh, an image into your canvas page and that image is in landscape perspective, it means that it's going to be longer um, 
in terms of its its width than it is tall, its height. And portrait is the inverse of that. So if you need to resize that asset and you need to shrink the the perspective of it, the, the biggest mistake I see commonly, and maybe you'll agree with this or maybe you'll disagree, Casey, the biggest mistake I commonly see happen here is um, a user goes to drop in um, an asset and they change the width without changing the height to keep the perspective. And you wind up with an image that was maybe a landscape, uh, a picture of maybe like hills and the sunset, and it looks squished and it, it just looks out of proportion. The, the answer to most of that is shift. Yeah. I mean, because if, if you're in Photoshop or Illustrator or anything, you're resizing an image and it is moving in horizontally and you meant to lock the aspect ratio so it retains those proportions, uh, shift, easily, you can toggle that on or off depending on what application you're using. So when we say shift, what we're really saying is we're saying that you hold the shift key when you go to resize an image or an asset in either an Adobe application or even something like, I believe, PowerPoint. It keeps the aspect ratio as you make it larger or smaller instead of giving you that squished, disproportionate look. You can, I mean, for different programs, you can lock the aspect ratio. So if I have an image that's, let's say, 100 by 200, and I resize it, it's not going to get any more out of scale or out of uh, proportion than one by two. Gotcha. Which is that simple. Uh, same with uh, photographs. Eight by ten, uh, five by seven, those are all aspect ratios. Okay, awesome. Um, I think DPI really, just if I'm not mistaken, has to do with pixel density. And I guess the big thing to take away from that, I don't want to go too far in the weeds on it because we're already at an hour, um, is, is really that depending upon the purpose of the asset, whether it's print or digital, that's when you really need to pay attention to the DPI. Is that correct? Yes. Most programs that you use are already going to have uh, presets. And the preset, of course, you know, you go into Photoshop or Illustrator and you select either letter if you select letter, it, the default is going to be inches. If you select uh, A4, a common uh, you know, art document size, or print document size, um, sorry, I've been going a while, so I think it's... There it was. Okay, so if you go into uh, Illustrator or Photoshop, you can select a preset, let's say um, a photo, 8 by 10 Well, the preset for that is going to include inches. Um, it may automatically be in portrait mode instead of landscape. Um, if it's going to be a print item, the default is usually 300 DPI or PPI. They're pretty much, it's dots per inch. And it's, dots are really pixels. They, they're they just really more flexible. DPI really does refer more to print, um, but really whenever you're dealing with digital images, you're really only going to be dealing in pixels. Okay. Um, so we've created these assets, and now in the last bit here before we 
uh, take a break, I wanted to talk just about a couple, a handful of the ways in which we can export um, the assets that we've created. And, and specifically, I'm going to be talking here about illustrations and icons. Um, so the, the big ones I want to share with our users, because they're probably the ones they're going to see the most frequently, are uh, SVG, which you've mentioned previously, Scalable Vector Graphics. Or the art uh, formerly known as prints. Exactly. Um, <laughs> JPEGs. Um, you're, you're the PNGs. only one I got to laugh on that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, JPEGs. PNGs, and then finally GIFs or GIFs as some people might know them as. So I want to talk about those four. Um, and, and the reason why I want to talk about those four is in case our users didn't know, all four of these file types can actually be implemented into PowerPoint now. So if you're looking to implement assets, you can actually put in a GIF, a JPEG, a PNG, or an SVG. Um, so I don't want to spend too long on each format um, but let's go ahead and start with the one that maybe everybody's the most familiar with. Let's start with the JPEG um, and talk just briefly a little bit about some of the, the pros and cons of using JPEGs. Like, why would I want to use a JPEG, Casey, versus one of the other file types? Okay, uh, well, let's go ahead and just break those up just to a couple of groups. So uh, JPEG is part of, like, raster formats, which means it relies on colored pixels to make an image. Um, just like if you drew a picture, if you zoomed in enough, you would see tiny graphite marks. Uh, anything that's rasterized, like a JPEG, is going to only give you pixel color information. Um, JPEG is extremely common because uh, you don't lose a lot of quality, but you do end up saving a lot of uh, file space whenever you export JPEG, and it is uh, the most common file type for images used online. Um, cons, it does not support transparency. And that's when we can get into, I'll just jump into PNG. Uh, PNGs are higher uh, quality. You uh, have, I think it's a lossless compression. Um, they support transparency, so if you're creating an image, uh, let's say an icon, you export it into a PNG, it's going to, that icon might be in a 500 by 500 or, you know, 250 by 250 or, you know, 16 by 16. Right. So that's okay. So with like PNGs, if I'm, if I'm creating an icon where I need to have no background and I want to overlay that on top of something else, that's when I would probably use a PNG. If I'm trying to show a, a picture that's going to have a huge color palette and it's going to be a picture proper of a location, a person, whatever, then I'm probably going to defer to a JPEG because I can decrease the, qual the quality of that image. Whilst it will still look good, it will take up less file space, which means that my end users in like Canvas will be able to visualize that faster. It'll load and increase uh, you know, page load time. So that's, I think, an important note there. Um, Absolutely, yes. Um, but of course, if you're doing anything that requires transparency, unless it's an SVG, then you'll want to go with PNG. Um, okay. One step above that, really quick, uh, I believe it's a TIFF. Um, yeah. And that's more for ma image manipulation. I'm just kind of throwing that in there. And that's going to be uh, a much more high resolu resolution image, I think, even than uh, PNG. Okay. And then. Um, 
let's let, we'll talk GIF and then we'll end with SVG since SVGs I think might be the hardest one to to wrap our heads around. So a GIF, of course, like the big advantage there is these are these images where you can essentially have a multitude of layers that exist as frames that can give you essentially an animation that plays either one time or infinitely from the picture format. Um, any other reason other than just wanting to have those in those kinds of uh, that kind of information or like that animation for a reason why a user might want to use a GIF over a JPEG or a PNG? Uh, really, if you're going to use the animation side of it, GIFs are helpful. They're, they definitely lose quality because they're very compressed. They're smaller file sizes, uh, and they need to be in order to have, you know, that frame-by-frame -frame animation, especially if it's constantly running on a web page. Um, avatars is another uh, use case. So if you had gotcha. a GIF, you might use something like that for your avatar because some of them are animated, they're small enough that, that the resolution may not make that much of a difference. Awesome. Okay, so let's go ahead and talk SVGs, and then we'll go ahead and wrap up this portion of the podcast. So SVG stands for Scalable Vector Graphics, and as its name implies, it literally uses vectors, which are mathematics, to render components of an image. Um, so what is like one of the biggest advantages of using an SVG over one of the other file formats that we talked about, Casey? So scalable vector graphic is essentially, uh, and it's a, it's at its simplest, it's a shape, let's say like a circle. Uh, and it retains that information based on the math of the grid and how the circle is constructed, or if it's a square, it essentially has uh, points on the canvas, and it says connect this point to this point, and then of course you can use a fill within those simple images, or you can add what, what's called a stroke to it, which would be an outline, a border. Um, SVG, Scalable Vector Graphics, are extremely useful, uh, especially now when we're seeing more SVG animations on web pages and you're seeing very very few actual uh, rasterized images that can be SVGs. So if you have simple shapes, uh, simple bullet points, simple icons, they're usually SVGs on, uh, on a standard website. Uh, the benefit to SVGs is you can scale them infinitely, however large you can print them or however uh, large file size you would like to save. Um, they don't blend. They're not. Uh, they're not rasterized like pixels, so they're not going to operate. They're not going to operate uh, like a paint application. Uh, there are some that will treat an SVG uh, sort of like it's in a paint application, but that's another discussion altogether. Uh, essentially, right. what you need to know is a scalable vector graphic. They will be a larger file size. Um, you can create interactive web images with them. So. One of the things I think is is very beneficial with the scalable vector graphics piece is that you can actually scale them on a mobile device and it will retain its crispness. And then also you can scale it up on a larger device screen and it still retains that crispness. Whereas with uh, PNGs or JPEGs, you might wind up getting like pixelation. Is that correct? That's correct. So with an SVG, you can go in and you, you can manipulate uh, anchor points uh, or add anchor points, but essentially you can scale it um, as large or as small as you need it. So the benefit to having an SVG 
you know, even at a small size, is you can export it at, you know, two, three, four, five times its regular size. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so we're going to go ahead and wrap up the, the portion of the podcast proper here. We're going to take a quick break. Um, and then we're going to come back and we are going to talk about what we are working with. So let's go ahead. We'll take a quick break right now. All right, we are back from the break, and it's time for the segment of the podcast we call Show Me What You're Working With. So, Casey, talking about apps that we are respectively working with, show me what you're working with right now. What apps are, are, are really resonating with you these days? Uh, in terms of design, I would yeah. say uh, it really depends on the use case for you know logos or graphics. Um, or graphic design, I might go with Affinity. That's usually my go-to. UI UX, Sketch is really good for that. Um, simple drawing applications for the iPad, like Procreate, are extremely useful. I use that one all the time. Yeah, and I can I can attest to these. Um, Affinity is a great um, kind of stand-in for the Adobe suite if you've got an iPad. Um, their full suite, which is their Illustrator-like uh, application, their Photoshop-like application, and their InDesign applications are all available on the iPad, and they do have Mac-compatible and Windows-compatible apps. Um, and there's just there's a learning curve if you've used Adobe before, but Casey swears by them, and they seem to be super user-friendly in a lot of regards. Um, Sketch is a Mac-only application that we do use in the Department of Strategic Initiatives for a lot of UI, UX, and layout designs, but it is really, really useful and handy from a design perspective in building out patterns and implementing those across a multitude of things. And then I know, Casey, like you said, you do a lot of your illustrating and your sketching in Procreate. Um, for, for my apps that I'm working with, um, while we're talking about asset creation, if, if you're a faculty member who maybe doesn't feel comfortable with creating your own assets there are like or icons, there are a couple of platforms out there that you might look into that can really actually allow you to easily download and utilize um, some, some pre-built assets, um, either with like at least um, a licensing agreement or contribution uh, acknowledgments. Um, one of them that we use in our department is called Font Awesome. It's a font library, uh, a web font library that's based on icons. But every single icon in that library has a scalable vector graphic version that you can download and implement um, You know, with a varying level of licensing agreement. And they've got a huge... It's over 7,000 icons now, I think, that you can sort through and, and download if you need to utilize some. Um, another app I use on my iPhone occasionally, it is iPhone exclusive, uh, sorry for that Android users, is called Assembly. And again, it has a bunch of different what they call stickers or icons built in, and you can overlay them and you can use colors. And if you build an icon that you like, you can export it in a PNG format or an SVG format. Um, so it's super useful. Um, so that's what we're working with this week. Um, and that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Um, this podcast, again, is the Collin College Academic Continuity Podcast. I would like to extend, again, a very special thank you to my guest, Casey Moon. Casey, thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast this week. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I hope you've enjoyed 
listening to us talk about uh, design principles as well as some of the ways that you can implement these principles to enhance your Canvas page, your PowerPoints, um, and, and the tools that we use to do that. Um, but that brings us to the close of this week's episode. Please join me in next week's episode when I'm going to take a trip down memory lane and talk about my time as an instructor at Collin College. Specifically, I'm going to focus on the creative ways I was able to curate content and host review sessions for my students. I'm going to talk a bit more about the ways in which I was able to create videos and then ultimately share those videos so that my students could review and prepare better for classes. And I'll talk about some of the tools, apps, and tips I picked up along the way, both from my mistakes as well as my successes. So that'll be next week's episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Colin College Continuity Podcast, and we hope that you tune in next week. Thanks. Thanks.